All right. Our Bible reading this morning is Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Romans 9, 1 through 13. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This is the word of God. Good morning, everybody, and a particularly warm welcome if you are new or visiting us at St. Jude's in Park, for we are delighted that you can be with us as we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's my great pleasure as the vicar, uh, John Forsyth, to kick off this continuing series looking at the book of Romans, and in particular, we are looking over the next few weeks at Romans 9 to 11, and this kind of big idea of the sovereignty of God. Now, back in uh, 1543, I would argue most of us had not been born then, uh, a Polish astronomer published a treatise that would revolutionise the way we see the world. His name was Nicholas Copernicus. And his revolutionary idea, and it was extremely revolutionary, was that the Earth is not at the centre of the universe. And therefore, Melbourne is not at the centre of the universe. Rather, he found out that in our solar system, as the name suggests, the sun is, in fact, at the centre. It was referred to, and is still referred to, as a Copernican revolution, a radical rethink about what sits at the centre. And, friends, this is what we have in Romans chapters 9 to 11. We have before us a Copernican revolution. 
And it's a Copernican revolution when we think about how we relate to God. Because I think if you're anything like me, we have a tendency to place ourselves at the centre. And not just the world revolves around me, but God and his plans revolve around me. But we need to be constantly reminded that in fact God is sovereign. God is at the centre and in fact we revolve around him. In other words, we need to be reminded that God's grace is a sovereign grace. A sovereign grace. What I mean by that is, it is grace, yes, but always under the kingship, under the lordship, under the sovereignty of God. It's not just out there. It's not just like oxygen. Grace is indeed grace, but it always sits under God's sovereignty. And that is what we see expounded for us in these chapters in Romans. And there's actually a reason why Paul will spend not a small amount of space in these chapters addressing this very issue. Remember, we'll we'll talk a bit about what's happened previously in Romans, but grace has been a big theme. And there's a reason is there's a big question, a big challenge, a big crisis that has arisen in response to all these great promises around God's grace that have been made to God's people in the previous eight chapters. Now, we need to go back and do a bit of kind of previously in Romans. Remember when you you watch season two of something on Netflix? There's always the first minute that gives you a bit of a catch-up. And so I'm going to try and do that uh, literally in a minute. We'll see how we go. Uh, The church that Paul is writing to has both Jewish and Gentile members. And in chapters one to eight, Paul has explained the power of God by which he is saving people from the terrible human dilemma of sin, a people who've rejected God. And because of sin, everyone, everywhere, whether they were Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, all stand under God's sovereign justice and wrath. And because of sin, all people everywhere, both Jew and Gentile, actually stand under the sentence of death and condemnation. And in the midst of this, Paul declares... The good news, the gospel, the gospel of sovereign grace. In 1 verse 16, Paul writes, The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. And it's this gospel that was foreshadowed beforehand in the Old Testament scriptures And it's the fulfilment of God's saving plan for humanity and indeed for the whole universe. And the good news finds its focus on this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come and lived and died for our sins and been raised to life. And radically, this Jesus, who was the promised king of Israel, we find is not just the promised king for Israel, but the promised king indeed for all people. He is the Saviour of all and the Lord of all, Jew and Gentile alike. And so Paul reminds us that we all have forgiveness and reconciliation and peace with God if we put our trust, if we have faith in the Lord Jesus. We are, in Paul's word, justified, which means to be declared right, 
The relationship we have with God and us is right and perfect because of what Christ has done. And we're also given this amazing promise of God's Holy Spirit as we head to the later chapters into verse 8, who gives us new life, who destines us for eternal glory. And so right at the end of chapter 8, we have these amazing promises that are made that we are God's beloved children, that there is an absolute certainty that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that is, is, uh, that is in the Lord Jesus. And once again, this promise is for both the Jewish people and for Gentile believers. And there are some pretty huge promises made in chapter 8. But then we get to the crisis in chapter 9. Well, these are big promises, but there's a challenge. Paul, notice here, the very opening verses of chapter 9 expresses, in spite of these big promises, grief and sorrow. Grief and sorrow for the loss of Jewish people, his own people, who have actually not recognised that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King. And so Paul is, is anxious and upset and concerned because here's the big challenge. If Israel is God's chosen people, promised and, and, and has the covenant, why would it appear that they are not following the Messiah? Why are they cut off from all these promises? Has God been faithful to his promises? Does God's word hold true? If it is for the Jewish people, then why are so many of them not following Jesus? That's the crisis that, that Paul is addressing in these verses. But it's really important that, that if you're not a Jewish person like me, I'm not a Jewish person either, it's actually a crisis that we can feel as well. Look at the list of benefits in verses 4 and 5 that the Jewish people have. Extraordinary list of benefits. Adoption of sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs. Seven great blessings. And not only that, from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. The Jewish people have everything going for them. And so if God's promises to Israel, which have these amazing benefits do not hold true, then what chance is it for us Gentiles who, by very definition, haven't got those seven things? It's a bit like this. If I promise to give my kids Christmas presents and yet I fail to deliver on those Christmas presents on Christmas morning, it's far less likely that other kids are going to get Christmas presents from me than my own kids, right? That's the challenge. If if someone's own kids aren't getting the promises, what about those who would seemingly be further away? If God can't keep his promises to Israel, how much more is this a crisis for Gentiles? How can we trust God's word? Now, you might experience that question, that challenge, in a number of different ways in your life. Are there moments where you thought, how, how can I really trust God's promises when the outlook seems so different? And these verses actually give us 
a really firm foundation to that question, not just in this live issue in the Roman church, but in the live issues in our own hearts. And Paul's answer is very simple in verse 6. He says very simply, it's not as though God's word has failed. It's not as though God's word has failed. Now, we could leave it there, but Paul doesn't. Paul will then use the next uh, three chapters explaining why this is the case. But he wants to make it very clear from the outset, no, it's actually not because of God's word. There's, there's been no defect in God's word. There's been no failure of God's word. And as Paul explains why this is the case, he, we kind of come across some really big and meaty issues that often create tension. The tension of divine election and human will. The tension of God's justice and human blame. The tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And you're meant to feel the tension. One of the problems is we, we come to these verses thinking, well, if we can sort this out nice and simply, we've got it. No, in fact... One of the challenges is we need to sit with the tension that God, as we shall see, is ultimately sovereign and at the same time we are ultimately responsible. A theologian, uh, Rose Douthwaite, says one of the biggest challenges and the biggest uh, is to try and simplify and make these tensions go away when looking at the deep things of God. Another example he gives is, is the Lord Jesus Christ fully God or fully human? And the answer is both not 50-50. And so we need to sit in this tension, and part of sitting in that tension is trusting in the sovereignty of the Lord. Well, let's look at what Paul does as he addresses this point. Well, Paul gives reasons for his answer that God's word has not failed three times in these verses, in verses 6 to 9. And then he gives two Old Testament quotations in support of his answer. So the first time he mentions it is in the second half of verse 6. He says, for, God's word is not failed for, in other words, this is the reason why, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Uh, 7a continues on this theme where it says, Not, uh, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. And then in verse 8, he's a good Anglican minister, he's got three points, right? Uh, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise. And we'll come back to that little phrase. The children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And I think you'll notice we sung some of those words, didn't we? Just in the, in the song before our Bible reading. Do you see the, the key point that Paul is making in answer to this question, has God failed? No, because firstly, true Israel, and when we hear the word Israel, we think God's people, God's children... It's a spiritual entity rather than a mere physical one, he's saying. Israel is a spiritual entity rather than a physical one. And secondly, 
That means true Israel, those who are truly God's people, are chosen by God alone, not by any other criteria. They're the the kind of two key points that we can draw from what Paul is saying here. Israel is a spiritual identity, not a physical one. And those who belong to Israel are chosen by God and not by any other method. This is why God's word has not failed. This is why would, even though seemingly in Paul's time so many Israelites are cut off from Christ, and Paul is saying they're actually not true Israelites. They are not truly children of Abraham. In other words, they are children of flesh, not children of the promise. And so what Paul is saying here, and it's extremely radical for the time, we've lost this radicalness because as we look around, we consider it normal for people from different backgrounds and cultures and language to be Christians. That's kind of normal. That is extremely revolutionary in Paul's time. Paul is saying that God's people, his church, his children, is not merely one ethnic group. Not one merely ethnic group. Not a physical term, not a historical grouping, but a spiritual grouping. By the way, this is what Paul has been arguing in Romans 8. Back in Romans 8, Paul says, "Look, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ are not those who are physically born from a certain group of people, but those who are spiritually reborn into a group of people. And therefore, to be an Israelite, to be part of God's family, to be a Christian, is to have a spiritual position as a child of God. Not because of any physical connections, which means people belong to God not because of their race, not because of their family, not because of their social hierarchy, but only because of God's effective promise. The calling of people, as we should see radically, from every group and every nation and every tribe and every tongue. He calls people from everywhere. Paul is teaching us the simple truth that people belong to God when God says they do. And what then Paul does is give some Old Testament examples to kind of show this is not something new. This has actually always been God's plan. And the first one is in verses, uh, second half of verse 7 to verse 9, where we read about Abraham's sons. And the context here is really important. Paul assumes that we know it. Now, back in the story of Abraham, we, back in Genesis, if you go right back there in chapter 12, Uh, God makes some amazing promises to Abraham before he's done anything in particularly good. And one of the key promises was that through Abraham, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. Through him. That his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, which is quite radical considering, first, he's very old. He's 100, his wife's 90. Secondly, they have no children. Thirdly, she's barren. Not, not who we would normally pick to make such a grand promise to. But can you see how this ties into this whole, this whole picture? God is going to be the one who grows his people. 
And what's the solution? Well, initially, Abraham actually doesn't trust God. He says, God, this is it's a little bit unusual. I am a little bit old. Uh, my wife and I haven't been able to have any kids. Uh, and so he has a son with his handmaid, uh, Hagar, uh, and the son is called Ishmael. In other words, Abraham tries to take on God's promises himself. He says, look, look, God, look, it's a great idea in theory, but in light, we're going to have to try something else. He takes it literally into his own hands, and guess what? He produces a son. Abraham has a son, which Paul calls a child of physical descent. Abraham wants Ishmael to be the heir for all these promises, so he takes it into his own hands. But God says, as this is the quote, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. In other words, the physical descent thing, yeah, you think you've got it sorted. No, my plans, my word will hold true. The promise seems ludicrous, but you can trust my word. And that's the promise in 9 verse 9 where it says, At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. In other words, this time I shall come. In other words, I will do the business of making this happen. This promise is in my hands, says God. That is the sovereign purposes of God at work. This is his grace at work. I make a promise, says God, and I will bring it to fulfillment, says God. And Sarah and Abraham don't just have a child of flesh, they have a child of promise. So Ishmael is the child of physical descent, the child of flesh, and Isaac is the child of promise. A seemingly crazy promise to make. And that picture of Isaac is actually a picture of us. It's an enacted metaphor. It's a powerful story that every person who comes into God's family comes the same way as Isaac as a child of promise, a seemingly crazy, out there promise, sovereign grace. See, the decisive work in Isaac becoming the, 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 the actual member of God's family is entirely God's work. It's not Abraham's work, it certainly wasn't Isaac's work. I mean, children don't have a lot of say in who your parents are. Imagine if you did, kids. That'd be great, right? You could. Would you want to swap? Oh, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't raise that question. Maybe not till school holidays are over, anyway. In other words, God is the sovereign actor. In fact, the only actor in fulfilling these promises. In other words, Paul is saying we are all children of promise. His promise. Now, why is this good news? Well, amongst other things, it means. That it doesn't matter who your earthly father is, it only matters who your heavenly father is. That means each and every person, no matter their cultural background, no matter their language, no matter their ethnicity, no matter how good or bad their earthly family is, has the wonderful promise to join God's family available to them. It is who your heavenly father is that matters, not who your earthly father is. And that's something we all share. We have different earthly fathers of varying degrees of, of goodness to badness. But we all have one heavenly father who keeps his promise. Which means the good news, the gospel, is for all nations. 
which is an extraordinary blessing. Praise the Lord, it's not just for Israel, but for us Gentiles as well. Well, the second example we have is in verses 10 to 13. And this is about another birth story with two sons, Jacob and Esau. And this is actually even more, uh, an even more compelling example uh, that God chooses and that grace is sovereign. The first difference from the previous story of Isaac and Ishmael is that both Jacob and Esau are conceived by the same set of parents. So Ishmael was Hagar and Abraham and, and Isaac was Sarah and Abraham, but he, here they both have the same parents. And notice that that's emphasised that in verse 10, just in case we didn't know. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So you can pick up here uh, that someone could have said, look, well, of course God didn't choose Ishmael. Um, you know, he didn't have a Jewish mother. He had a non-Jewish mother. He wasn't really in the family. And Paul says, no, no, you've, you've missed the point. Let me clarify with Jacob and Esau, who have the same sets of parents. The same father and the same mother. Not two different fathers, not two different mothers. And the second reason, which is even more compelling, is that they're twins. The distinctions between them are minimal. There's no kind of, you know, this is a good son, this is a bad. No, they're, they're at the same time, the conditions of their birth, they're going to be almost identical. We realise that there's, there are differences about them, but they are twins. So any choice between them has to be based entirely upon God and not on themselves. And so what Paul is saying is he is reminding us that there's no human distinctiveness, so to speak, from Jacob and Esau. They are equal in all aspects. Yet what happens? God chooses one over the other. He's saying that to become part of God's family, his election is based on God's choice alone. Look, we see this in verse 11 to 13. Uh, and Paul uses some very strong language, as we shall see, to make his point. In verse 11, he says, Yet, before the twins were born, so we do know there are some differences after, but before they're born, before they'd done anything good or bad, there's no moral judgment in order that God's purpose in election might stand, and verse 12, not by works. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it, as, a Paul, uh, as one of Paul's favourite lines. But by him who calls, uh, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And as an older brother, I, I find this verse concerning. Uh, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's very strong language, isn't it? Not just Jacob was slightly better than Esau, but Esau was okay, you know. There's a bit of an idiom going on there because uh, uh, the idea of the word for hated is actually the idea along the word for not chosen because as you read the story, Esau actually is cared for by God. But it's really clear that God's sovereign choice, his sovereign grace is evident. It's really strong. You cannot get past this point that God chooses people for his purposes. His grace is sovereign. And it's not works. Paul is, is at pains to point this out. There's nothing that makes Jacob more worthy and there's nothing that makes Esau less worthy. 
God chooses us not because we are good. In fact, we shall see it's in spite of the fact we're not good. But he calls us according to his purpose, his sovereign grace. See, this is the Copernican revolution, isn't it? We want to place ourselves at the centre and say, God, uh, my will be done. But Paul is reminding us that that at the centre of all things sits the sovereign Lord of all. Not us choosing God, but God choosing us. And there's a bit of a reason why this grates against us culturally. is because we are a generation that is blessed with choice. We have so many choices, don't we? And so we think when it comes to God, it's part of this plethora of choices that sits before us. You can choose Mac. Any Mac users out there? None. PC. What, none of, no one's using computers these days. That's right. Something else. I'm not sure what I've missed. Uh, coffee drinkers. We, so we can put your hand up. It's okay. I know you, you probably need your second one about now. Tea drinkers. I know you're with Mike. There you go. Weirdos. Uh, we still love you. Netflix or Stan or yeah, there's so many. We are a, gener- a generation that has so many choices. But the scriptures say that we actually can't choose God any more than I could choose to be nine foot tall. I might long to be nine foot tall. Think of the basketball abilities I would have. But I can't choose that outcome. It's a bit like this. We often think of our salvation uh, a bit like this pitch. Imagine that you're swimming between the flags and you're out the back and you've got a bit of a cramp and you realise... I'm going to need help here. I need rescue. My life is in serious danger. And so you wave to the lifesaver and she swims out or uses that uh, boat thing. That boat thing looks like fun. Uh, Heads out and you're rescued. That's the story of our salvation. But the reality is we're not waving, we're drowning. We haven't even got the energy to put our hand up. We are floating face down. And a person who is floating face down can't choose to wave their hand. And that's, that's the reality. We can no more choose God than we can choose to stop ourselves dying. And that's the language of Scripture. Ephesians 2 doesn't say, while we were struggling in transgressions and sin, God saved us. It says, no, when we were dead in transgressions and sins. Romans 5.10 doesn't say God reconciled us while we were not really hanging out really well with God and had a few problems in the relationship. Reconciled us while we were enemies, not just having a bad day. And the reality is, of course, we actually have already chosen, and we chose sin. We chose to reject God. We chose rebellion. We have chosen death. Every single human being has chosen to walk away from God. By virtue of sin, that is our decision. Our wills are corrupt, but God in His astonishing mercy, in His sovereign grace, chooses people who could never choose Him. Now we've only touched the surface of this extraordinary truth this morning, this Copernican revolution. And I think there are many ways in which we can respond. But I think one of the key ones would be humility. 
God's mercy, His sovereign grace, flows to the most unlikely people. God's sovereign grace flows to the most unlikely people. Even people like me and you. And this sovereignty of God's grace is good news because it leads us to humbly praise God for each and every point of our salvation. See, friends, there was not and and is not and nor will there be a point where we become the decisive cause of our salvation. It is all God's work. Your salvation from beginning to end is the work of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we can only humble ourselves and boast in Christ and find our greatest joy in praising rather than in being praised. See, one of our deepest sins is that we believe and feel that that our deep and internal happiness and health come from being praised, come from being made much of, rather than actually praising God. The author of your salvation is not you. Praise the Lord, it's not me. We think that our deepest joy and satisfaction comes from being made much of, rather than rejoicing in the fact that our sovereign Lord has saved us forever. That is the Copernican revolution in action. It's where your praise goes. We praise the centre. And so you can work out what you think is at the centre by what you're praising. (laughs) Is it the sovereign Lord of all grace? Because, friends, that is why we were made. We were made not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify the one who has made us and redeemed us. So it starts with humble praise of the one who has saved us from beginning to end. Secondly, I think these these astonishing words from Paul just give us a humble confidence that we can trust God's word. We can trust his promises because our salvation is God's work from beginning to end. It is not dependent upon us. Thank goodness. Can you imagine, just for a moment, imagine this, that your salvation was based on your spiritual life, how good you were going spiritually, right? Sunday I went to church, right? It's right up there. Monday morning I went to work right down there. We'd be up and down like a yo-yo and the reality is we'd actually never get high enough in the first place. Friends, praise the Lord, that is not the way our salvation works. It's not 50% us and 50% God. It is God's work from beginning to end which gives us a sense of peace. Because here's the truth, friends, nothing you have done could make God love you less. Nothing you have done can make God love you less. And nothing that you do can make God love you more. See, the root of your salvation, it it goes down into the eternal roots of God's grace. 
not in your abilities, not in how good you were last week, but into the eternal depths of God's sovereign grace. And what this means is you can say with complete confidence, complete and utter confidence that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because it's in Christ Jesus, not in John Forsyth, and not in you. It is in Christ Jesus. And that is the great blessing of this revolution. God's word never fails. Let me pray that we will continue to find extraordinary comfort in this sovereign grace of our Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word and for these challenging words which target our sinful hearts and help us, uh, help us be reminded that we are not at the centre but you are. We thank you, gracious Father, that our salvation is not dependent upon ourselves and our weak and feeble efforts but on your astonishing sovereign grace. And the great news that there is nothing we have done that can cause you to love us less. Nothing that we can do that will cause you to love us more. That while we were dead, that while we were your enemies, in your astonishing love, you rescued us, sent your son to die for us and raised to give us life. And that because of that, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from your love. In the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, let's stand and uh, come before God, singing our praises and um, reflecting on the word that John brought us today. Would you stand and sing with me?
time of prayer today uh, now but before we pray let's just take a moment to all close our eyes and um, reflect on the week that's just passed uh, so that we can think about ways we might have fallen short and things we want to confess to God so please take a moment with me you pray with me the words of the prayer of confession that will come up on the screen? Merciful God, our maker and our judge, we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what we have failed to do. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. We repent and are sorry for all our sins. Father, forgive us. Strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Having confessed, it, having confessed our sins, uh, hear these words of assurance from 1 John 1, 8-9. If we say we have